Okay, so we're in Philippians chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, Philippians, of course, is in the New Testament. It's after Galatians and Ephesians. Um, if you're in Colossians, you're too far. So, uh, Philippians chapter 2, and while you're turning there, I'm going to share a brief story with you. It's the story of a man named Ralph Lipschitz, and he was a um, son of a Jewish immigrant who grew up in Brooklyn. He's a very poor man um, living in Brooklyn. He didn't have a lot of money. And um, his dream was always to go to college, but he did one semester of college and couldn't afford it and had to drop out. And he ended up joining the army just to make ends meet. When he came back from the army, uh, he came back to Brooklyn and uh, ended up working as a store clerk for a men's apparel shop, uh, still not really having any money. He was barely making ends meet living in Manhattan. Um, And he decided, he got this idea to sell ties on the side. So he designed and sold a few ties and started selling them on the side. And he had so much success selling these ties that within the first year, he earned $500,000. And this was in 1967. It's a lot of money. Okay. So he decided that he had a business going. So with his name, he thought maybe he wouldn't get as far. So he legally changed his name to Ralph Lauren and founded the polo brand. Um, He's now worth $7 billion. And I've been told most of that money comes from Brian James's wardrobe. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But he's worth $7 billion. He was barely getting by, barely getting by. um, And now he's worth $7 billion. And this is remarkable. I mean, we all all love a rags to riches story. Yes? There's something about the American dream that says that we can, if we work hard enough, we can do anything. We love a rags-to-riches story. But, but Christ gives us an even better story, and that's the story of riches to rags. So God, the God of this world, the God of the universe, came down and gave up everything, left the glories of heaven so that we might know him. So he shows us the story of riches to rags. So uh, as we celebrate this Advent season, we're coming up on Christmas, um, we're celebrating the most dramatic display of humility in human history. And so uh, we're going to see that in this passage this morning. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 breaks down this way. First, we'll see the humility of Christ, and we'll see that in his attitude, in his form, and in his practice. And then we'll see the glory of Christ, which is given by the creator, that's God, and by the creation, which is us. So that's our outline. So first thing that we're going to see is the humility of Christ. And that's verses 5 through 8, which say, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Okay, so the first thing that we see, first thing that we see is his attitude. So, It tells us, have this attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And this word, have this attitude, what it literally means is have this mind. Have in mind. Okay? Uh, And that's key. Because humility begins with a mindset. Humility begins with the proper attitude. If we don't have the mindset of humility, then everything else that we do, our form and our practice, won't be true humility. So humility begins with a mindset, with an attitude. And so Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, so uh, I, I've always heard that humility is defined as a proper view of self. 
Just recognizing who you are. It's a proper view of self. And I thought this was a really helpful quote to kind of highlight that. Um, if it'll, there we go. Uh, this says, Christ's humility consisted of abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest ignominy. Our humility consists in refraining from exalting ourselves from a false estimation. So in other words, what he's saying is that Christ's humility was an actual lowering of himself, but our humility is just refraining from raising ourselves. Does this make sense? He goes on, he says, he gave up his right. All that is required of us is that we do not assume to ourselves more than we ought. Okay, so this is, what he's basically saying is that recognizing who we are is the starting point of humility. Recognizing who we are is the starting point of humility. So, who are we? Well, if you're like me, you're a sinner, you're an enemy of God, and you're a wretch. But, with Jesus, you're a sinner redeemed. You've been purchased not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You're an enemy reconciled. God was... uh, through Christ in the world, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. Um, if you're like me, if you've trusted Christ, you're a wretch made righteous. You, you were a sinner, dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, with his mercy and the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. And this was all as a free gift by grace through faith, not by, based on anything we do. So remembering who we are, though, recognizing that none of this is true without Christ. See, before Christ, this is who we were. We were sinners lost. We were enemies of God. We were unrighteous. We have to remember who we were in order to understand what Christ has done for us. That apart from Christ, we're nothing. But with Christ, we can be redeemed, reconciled, righteous. We were enemies with God. But as Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we need to remember where we came from. Um, when, when we have a proper view of self, there's no boasting. This is why Ephesians 2.9 says, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's no boasting when we recognize that none of us deserves to be in this room today. None of us deserves eternal life, but it was a gift by God's grace. And so a proper view of self naturally leads to humility. A proper view of self naturally leads to humility because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So, we need to have this attitude. And obviously, the opposite of humility is pride. Anytime you teach on humility, it forces you to teach on pride. And that's convicting for me because I struggle with pride. Um, and maybe some of you in this room do as well. Um, pride in my life manifests in thinking that perhaps I deserve recognition or status. Um, but pride at its worst manifests even in my ministry, where teaching can become about my glory rather than about God's. Pride can affect the deepest parts of our lives. So we need to be focused. We need to have the humility, the attitude of humility. And so uh, it's hard, though, because our culture encourages pride. Our culture actually encourages pride. It didn't used to, but now it does. Um, We live in a world that says that self-esteem is more important than anything else. Our our culture actually encourages pride. And I, I thought this was a helpful quote. This is a guy, Cornelius Plantiga. He's a Christian philosopher. And he's quoting a Newsweek article and says, In much of contemporary American culture, aggressive self-regard is no longer viewed with alarm. 
Instead, people praise and promote it. This is a culture in which, get this, American school children outrank Asian school children, not in math ability, but in self-confidence about their math ability. Okay? This is the culture that we live in, a culture which encourages pride. Our culture encourages pride, so we must not be conformed to this world. We must not be conformed to this world. What's the response? It's to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And notice that it begins by saying, have this mind, which was in Christ Jesus. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. As JB always says, if we're not consciously being transformed by the renewing of our minds, we will subconsciously be conformed to this world. We have to be careful because our culture encourages pride. So, we saw the attitude. We saw the attitude of Christ. Next, we're going to see form, verses 6 through 7. So, verse 6 says that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So, he says he existed in the form of God. This word form means an outward expression of an inward reality. So, what this means is that Jesus existed as fully God. Jesus came to this earth as fully God, and that's important. Um, He came as fully God, and we know that from John 1. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then slide down to verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So he existed in the form of God. This is just another way of saying he's God, okay? Jesus existed as God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word thing to be grasped, it's, a, it's tricky to translate, which is why different translations kind of deal with it differently. But it has the idea of to seize or stake claim. Um, it has even more the idea of to seize or stake claim what's rightfully yours. So think for a minute. Uh, let's say that you travel for Christmas break. Some of you will. Um, and let's say that you're gone for a couple of weeks, and then you come back, and there's a squatter in your home. He's moved all your stuff out. He's put his stuff in. And you're like this is my house. No, it's not. But you, you have something key. You can produce the deed. You can show this is my house. You can take a claim. You can seize your home because it's rightfully yours. And that's the idea of a thing to be grasped. This is equality with God is Jesus right, but he doesn't seize that claim. Does this make sense? So he doesn't regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He has the right to, but he chooses not to. Okay. Instead, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now remember, Jesus is still God. We we got that in verse 6. He says that he existed in the form of God. So Jesus was God, but he gave up the prestige. He emptied himself. He gave up the prestige. Uh, Some of us are perhaps in positions of some power or status or whatever it may be. And it's easy for us to think that because we have the right to something, that we must assert that right. We live in a society where um, if you earned it, it's yours. And it's a good thing to stake that claim every time. That's, that's kind of what our culture tells us. But the example of Jesus is instead, you don't have to assert every right that you have. And, and instead, you can empty yourself. That doesn't mean that you give up the position. Jesus was still God. But it means that you don't walk around with the prestige. So he emptied himself. And it says that he took the form of a bondservant took the form of a bondservant. I want you to think about something for a minute. If Jesus came to the world as a king, 
if he had an entourage and he had a crown and he came into Jerusalem and kicked out Herod and took over, that would still be a lowering of himself. If Jesus came in the highest majesty that this world had ever seen, it would have been an abasement of who he is. It would have been a lowering of himself from divinity to humanity. And he took it a step further, and he took the form of a bondservant, born to some carpenters from Nazareth in a manger. He took the form of a bondservant. And I want you to notice the parallel with verse 6. Verse 6 says he existed in the form of God. Well, here we have that he took the form of a bondservant. So I, I want you to see that even though he was fully God, he also was completely a bondservant. But I want you to notice the distinction. That in verse 6 it says that he existed as God. But in verse 7 it tells us that he took the form of a bondservant. So we might say... The divinity was Jesus' natural form. That's how he existed. But he took the form of a bondservant. So this is his humility and form. Um, we also see that he was made in the likeness of men. Made in the likeness of men. This is a really cool phrase. It has the idea of a shared experience. Sharing in our experiences. Um, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in all points yet without sin. We have a God who knows the experience of being human. We have a God who knows what it's like to be tempted, what it's like to be hungry, what it's like to lose a friend and weep over him. We have a God who's shared in our experiences. He's come not just in the form of man, but in our likeness. We have a God who understands. And there are people perhaps in our sphere of influence, people in our world who have a lower experience than we do, who have an existence that uh, we, would, we wouldn't want to share in. But Jesus gives us the example of sharing in the experiences of, of things that are beneath him. And sometimes humility requires that of us, that we share in the experiences, the hard things of people in our lives. So Jesus shared in the experiences, and he was found in the appearance as a man, found in appearance as a man. So he, he did not outwardly reflect his inward reality. Uh, I think it's striking. If you read the Gospel of John, you see um, at the Last Supper that the Apostle John is leaning up against Jesus' chest. He's, he says he's reclined against him. It's this intimate moment. It's beautiful. And then you read Revelation and that same Apostle John sees Jesus in his full glory and he falls to his knees and he's like, I'm not worthy of being in your presence. The same person, it's Jesus. But Jesus concealed some of his glory in order to dwell with us. So he chose to be found in appearance as a man to not outwardly reflect his inward reality. Jesus came in full glory but concealed it. For us, again, some of us might have certain positions of, of power or prestige or wealth, um, sometimes we desire to be seen, to, to outwardly reflect that reality. Maybe it's through the things that we wear or the car that we drive or the home that we live in. Uh, sometimes we, we do those things simply so that people can see our status. Uh, I don't know, I'm not saying that it's wrong to drive a nice car or wear nice clothes or even live in a nice home, but it, it's why do we do it? Are we doing it so that people can see 
our, our, our wealth, our status. Jesus chose not to outwardly reflect his inward reality. So we see that he existed in the form of God. He was fully God, but he chose not to assert his right. Remember, he chose not to stake that claim, to, to, to grasp at it. And then we see that he emptied himself of the prestige. He was still God, but he emptied himself. And he took the form of a bondservant, the lowest of low. And he shared in our experiences and chose not to outwardly display his divinity, his glory. So that's his form. Jesus gives us an example of lowly form and rites passed by for the glory of God. That's the example of humility that we see in form. But next we see something else. We see humility in practice. And that's verse 8. Verse 8 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he humbled himself. He humbled himself. We can have the right form. Um, I want you to think about this. We just talked about like maybe you, you drive a nice car or wear nice clothes or whatever, so that people can see your wealth. But the opposite is true and that perhaps you have wealth, but you intentionally dress down so that people think, wow, he's humble. Well, that's not any better, right? So the form of humility isn't enough. It's the practice of humility. So Jesus had the attitude and the form and the practice of humility. We must practice humility. So how do we do that? How do we practice humility? Well, it tells us he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Becoming obedient. So obedience is the key to humility, finally. Um, Jesus epitomizes humility through his obedience. So that means for us, that means for us that we can live humbly by obeying the word of God. We live humbly as we obey the word of God. When we submit ourselves to the word of God, we live humbly. Um, We see next that he was obedient to the point of death. And that was indeed the call for Jesus. To be obedient to God was to die. And perhaps that's not true for anyone in here. But that is true for some people who go as missionaries to India. Or who serve as pastors in Iran. And it is true for us to the extent that we're each and every one of us called to die to ourselves and live to Christ. That we're called to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. So Jesus gives us humility which leads to obedience to the point of death. Even if we're not called to die physically, we are called to die to ourselves and live to Christ. To offer our lives as a sacrifice. Obedience to the point of death. God, the God of the universe, died for you. The wages of sin is death. The, The only reason that there's any death in this world is because there's sin in this world. If there weren't sin, there wouldn't be death. The wages of sin is death. But he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's incredible. Sometimes we forget what a twisted, backwards irony it is that perfection would become sin so that sin could become perfection. But that's what God did for you. And it says he was obedient even to death on a cross. Why does he do this? 
seems almost redundant to say this. Paul, Paul tells us he was obedient to the point of death, and then he goes a step further and says, even death on a cross. Why? Well, the cross was public shame. The cross was public shame. Um, when I was in high school, I used to speed a lot. I don't anymore. Don't worry. Um, and I, I remember this one time that I was driving, and I got pulled over, and I'm sitting on the, on the shoulder, and this police car is sitting there with the lights behind me, and I'm like, every car that goes by, I'm sinking a little lower in my seat, like, please, no one look at me. And then the worst of the worst happens. My friends pull up at the red light, and they see me, and like, wait a minute. Tyler just got pulled over. So they're honking at me, and they're taking pictures and texting them to me, and I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh. Okay, anytime you get pulled over, you sit there, and you're just like, oh, I hope no one sees me. The public shame of the cross is obviously so much more than the public shame of being pulled over on the shoulder. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but when the Roman Empire would crucify people, they would intentionally do it on, on thoroughfares, so busy roads within the city. They would set up the cross so that everyone could see this person and say, wow, that's a bad dude. And the only person in this world who ever lived without sin is up on that cross enduring the public shame and humiliation of everyone else thinking he's one of the worst in the Roman Empire. Death on a cross was more than just death. It was more than going out in the glory of battle. No, it was, it was humiliation. Death on a cross. It was absurd. But Jesus despised the shame. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. He despised the shame and died for you. So his humility leads him to die and it leads him to die on the cross. So his death was an act of obedience, motivated by love, expressed through humility. An act of obedience, motivated by love, expressed through humility. For us, again, God may not call us to die physically, but we are called to obey and to live humbly. So we see that his practice was that he humbled himself he was obedient, and obedient to the point of death and even the humiliation of the cross. So this is his practice of humility. So the key for us as we practice humility is obedience. Obedience to the word of God. There are a lot of commands in the Bible um, to make disciples, evangelize and train, um, to love God and love others to forgive. The key for us as we practice humility is to come under the authority of God and obey his word. So we've seen the humility of Christ both in his attitude, his form, and his practice. So next let's see the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. And we're going to see two aspects. We're going to see by the creator and by the creation. So uh, First, we'll see by the creator. That's verse 9. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. He bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So for this reason, because of his humility, through obedience, Jesus is exalted. You understand that if Jesus had come to this world and then refused to obey, we wouldn't be here this morning. 
he wouldn't receive the glory. Uh, Jesus, he, he had to die in order for our sin to be paid for. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't hard for him. As a kid, I used to have this idea of like, well, yeah, he died, but he's God, so. No, he was a real man who had to endure the pain and the suffering of being beaten, mocked, and scorned, and then pierced through his hands with nails on the cross. It was agonizing. But he did that for us. Because of his obedience, Jesus is exalted. And it says that God bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Jesus, Savior, God with us, Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, the great high priest. His name is rich with glory. Rich with glory. It's the name above all names. How do we treat his name? I think that sometimes in the church, we, we neglect to treat his name as holy. One of, the, one of the sins that we tend to tolerate is to take his name in vain. How flippantly do we say things like, good Lord, Jesus, thank God. We use his name in vain, but Jesus' name is holy, rich with glory. Let's treat it as the name above every name. Let's treat it as it ought to be treated. Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the Creator, because of Jesus' humility, highly exalts him and gives him the name above every name. And next we see that he's exalted, he's glorified by the creation. That's us, by the creation. Verse 10 tells us, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every knee will bow. That's worship. To bow is to worship. It's to revere. But ultimately, it's to regard with deference or humility. To bow is an act of humility. And it's an act of worship. So for us, we're, we're called to worship him. And it says that this is everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is everybody. Everybody. This is both the living and the dead, the believers and the unbelievers. If you've never trusted Christ, you will one day bow before him. You might say you don't believe in him. You might say you don't think he exists, but that doesn't matter because he does exist. He is God and you will bow before him one day. Don't wait until it's too late. You will confess him as Lord too. Because every tongue will confess. Every tongue will confess. Believers, to confess Jesus is to proclaim his name. Okay, we can start doing that now. We can do this now through evangelism, right? We can proclaim his name now. So unbelievers, again, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you will stand before him and you will declare him Lord. Don't wait until it's too late. Everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It says this is to the glory of God the Father. So God in his full triune glory shares in the exaltation of his saving work. Um, We who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit will bow before God the Son, thanking him to the glory of God the Father. The whole Trinity takes part in the glory of his saving work. So I want to 
point back to this for just a minute, that every tongue will confess. To trust Christ is an act of humility. We see in the Bible that um, the prideful aren't saved. It's the humble who are saved. And, And all that means is that you need to recognize that you need a Savior. If you don't recognize that you need a Savior, then you won't trust Him. So the response to the gospel that Jesus died and rose again and was buried for our sin and rose again, the the response to this gospel message is that we need to believe. We need to trust him in order to have eternal life. And he offers it as a free gift. But you might think that maybe that's too easy. You might think that, well, there's surely there's something I need to do. And it's not fair that, you know, yeah, I think I'm pretty much good enough to get into heaven, but not this guy. You're going to let him in? It's an act of humility to recognize that you're not good enough. Remember we saw that we're all sinners. We're all enemies of God. We're all wretches apart from Christ. That's important because each one of us must come to that conclusion and recognize our need for a Savior. If you've never trusted Christ, trust him now. You can do it right where you're sitting. You can trust Jesus, the one who came as a baby that we celebrate at Christmas, but the one who also died and rose again in glory that we celebrate at Easter. He died for you and paid for your sin so that you could have eternal life. Don't wait. Let me give you uh, a summary of this section. The creation, we, f- we saw that every knee will bow. That's an act of worship. Let's worship our Savior. We saw that in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that this means that the living and the dead, the believers and the unbelievers. And we saw that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we saw the humility of Christ and attitude, have this attitude which was yours in Christ Jesus. Um, And then we saw the form, he existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. We saw his practice, that he humbled himself by being obedient and we saw the glory that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We just saw that the Christmas season is about the incarnation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And his story is one of riches to rags. I think it's interesting that um, in Isaiah, he says that our righteousness is filthy rags. The best that we have is filthy rags. It's not good enough. But he takes our rags and makes us rich in Christ. He gave up his riches for rags so that he could take our rags and make us rich. He deserves all the honor and all the glory. So let me give you some applications. First, let's follow Christ's example of humility. Uh, We saw to have this mind, have this form have this practice. Believers, be obedient to God and be in harmony with others. Be obedient to the word of God and in harmony with others. We didn't talk about this. We just didn't have time. But harmony with others is the context of this passage. Paul's writing here and he takes a break to write this section. But immediately surrounding it, verse 4 says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So be in harmony with others. That's a way that we can practice humility. Unbelievers, recognize you need a Savior. Don't let your pride keep you from recognizing that you need a Savior. Trust in Him. And secondly, let's glorify our Savior. Let's glorify Him through worship. 
We had the example of bowing before him. Let's glorify him through worship. Worship is more than just singing songs. Worship is studying. Worship is singing. Worship is giving. Worship is offering our lives as a sacrifice. And second, let's glorify him through proclaiming his name. Let's go into this community and share the message that Jesus Christ came into this world, gave up the riches of heaven, took the rags of man in order that we might be in heaven with him, in the kingdom with him, eternal life forever. Um, and this is a really great opportunity. Uh, I was on campus a few weeks ago with Hunter, our, our youth pastor, and it was really easy. He, we wanted to do some evangelism, and he just asked people, hey, what does Christmas mean to you? And that started the conversation. It, it's a really great time of year to be sharing the gospel. There's, there's a really easy road in. What does Christmas mean to you? Can I tell you what it means to me? It's the birth of Jesus Christ. He came into this world to die for us. So let's glorify our Savior. Let's worship him and let's proclaim his name.